Welcome to the BGSM Podcast. I'm Daniel Friedman, and today I'm very excited to be welcoming back Dr. Alex Hutchinson to break down what has been a historic week in the world of running. Alex is an author and journalist whose work appears in Outside Magazine, The Globe and Mail, The New York Times, and The New Yorker. He has a keen interest in exploring the limits of human performance, which was the subject of his latest book, Endure. Alex, thank you for joining us again on the podcast. Thanks, Daniel. It's great to be back. On the morning of the 12th of October in Vienna, 34-year-old Eliud Kipchoge became the first person in history to run a marathon in under two hours. His time of one hour, 59 minutes and 40 seconds was almost two minutes faster than his official marathon world record of two hours, one minute and 39 seconds he ran at the 2018 Berlin Marathon. And during your recent keynote at the Third World Congress of Sports Physical Therapy in Vancouver, you didn't think that Kipchoge would break the two-hour barrier, but before he started the run, you changed your mind. And I was wondering, what changed your mind? Well, there were definitely two voices battling it out in my head for this whole time. And, and one was the rational voice that uh, ever since the breaking two race in, in 2017, where he was just 25 seconds away, you kind of know if he's 25 seconds away, less than a second a mile away, that it's possible. He's capable of doing it, especially with some additional refinements in the subsequent two years, you know, a, a slightly faster course and crowd support. But the other voice in my head that's a loud one is, is uh, always bet against success in the marathon <laughs> that the marathon is just such a cruel event and i've i've been cheering for people in marathons for for decades now and it seems like 99 percent of the time it ends in heart in heartbreak so i kind of didn't want to get my heart broken so i, I my uh sort of emotional or my my gut feeling was don't never don't assume that it's going to be successful but as we got closer and closer to the race and i I, I started to be influenced by the voices around me, that looking at all the polls and, and hearing from everyone else who really thought he was going to do it. I thought maybe this isn't such a crazy thing after all. And so by the time I went to bed the night before the race, you know, or a few hours before the race, uh, I kind of thought he's probably going to do it and I'd better listen to that alarm when it beeps at, at two in the morning. <laughs> and what were you thinking when you saw him cross that finish line? Yeah, you know what? It, it was. I mean, it was an amazing feeling, and I was, I was, <laughs> I was glad I had woken up in the middle of the night because the race did start at two fifteen in the morning for for me. And I was hugely impressed, especially the way he finished. Uh, it, that was probably the the last kilometer when he finally kind of, or halfway through the last kilometer, he pushed through the pacemakers and just took off alone. And you saw that he all of a sudden he had tons of energy left. He accelerated by from from two fifty a k down to about two forty a k for the last kilometer you know i was amazed at what he had done but it, it sort of standing outside myself and watching i was also thinking i'm less surprised and amazed than i would have been two years ago he kind of i think the big work he did was two years ago uh running a two flat 25 when the world record was just under 203 and this was almost kind of like checking off the list and say okay we, we showed it could be done two years ago now we're doing it before we talk about what's changed between this attempt and his attempt two years ago in Monza for breaking two, I want to focus on his post-run interview that he did in Vienna last week. Kipchoge compared his achievement to Roger Bannister breaking the four-minute mile and stated that no human is limited. He also said that he expects more people all over the world to run under two hours after that day. What does the record mean for running and the belief about the limits of human performance that you've written and spoken about so often? 
Yeah, I mean, I think you know the parallels are pretty clear, and he's not the first one to 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 make this comparison to the four minute mile. Obviously, there there's there's some differences that we have to acknowledge. He, you know, he didn't do this in a in a, a world record eligible way. He had a bunch of assistance, for instance, from pacemakers, and so it's not going to be that we're going to show up, you know, in, at the London Marathon next spring, and and you know everyone and his brother is going to be running under two hours for the marathon. But I really do think that. What he's done, no matter how artificial the conditions were in some sense, uh, has changed the way people are thinking about uh, marathon times. And it, and it can't help but change how the next generation of, of runners sets their goals and, and sets their training targets. It's not, you know, the whole four minute mile thing, of course, is one of those stories that has uh, you know, gotten better in the telling, I guess, is, is one way of putting it, that it's not like all of a sudden it became easy to break a four minute mile just because Bannister did it. But it's also, I don't think, a coincidence that, that you know, the second man to break four minute miles did it just a few weeks after after Bannister did, John Landy. Uh, I think that, that there really is some, something that makes humans unique is the way we can compare ourselves, not just to the people around us, but to the people who've come before us. Um, that's why human records are still getting faster while dog and horse racing records have sort of stagnated over the last half century. So, I, yeah, I think I think Kipchoge's right in, a, in the sense that what he did will, will help usher in other people after him and eventually to surpass him. But I don't think it's going to be tomorrow and I don't think it's going to be easy. Do you think in that sense that Kipchoge actually came before himself and the fact that he was so close to breaking it in Monza two years ago impacted his performance in Vienna this year? I, absolutely. And I, you know, after Monza, Monza was the real shocker of the of the last three years to me. The Monza race two years ago was the one that, that blew my mind. And after, after that race, I wrote an op-ed for the New York Times where I said, I think it's changed how people think of the marathon. And I think Kipchoge is going to show up in Berlin and run 201 something. And he didn't. He it, it rained in Berlin, and I thought, okay, now I look stupid. And then he went to London the next spring, in, in spring of 2018, and it was the hottest London in in the history of the marathon. Uh, and so he didn't break the record again. But then finally, a year and a half later in Berlin, he did run 201 something. And the thing is, to run 201, you have to not just be in shape to run 201. You have to be in the mental state where you're willing to to go out and run the first half of the marathon on pace to run a 201 or close to it. And so it requires a, a leap of faith that starts right from the very first strides of the marathon. And so I think it was the Monza race, which where he had all the help that that and all the sort of assistance that created the circumstances in which he was willing to go out and run the first half of a marathon under one hour. Uh, and that sort of moved the frame such that at Berlin, he was willing to say, OK, the world record's 202.57. I'm not going to go out and try and run 202.56 or even 202.40. I'm going to hang it all out there because I think I can run 201. Besides Kipchoge's belief in himself, what else changed between this attempt and the attempt two years ago in Monza? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, there, there's some obvious answers which maybe aren't, that aren't very meaningful. I mean, the course changed, the location changed. It went from a Formula One track to a, a park, uh, you know, park roads in Vienna. And the course was generally straighter in Vienna, but had a few tighter turns. And, you know, the they, they had a, a bigger window. So they, they, they had a I think it was almost a two-week window where they were considering holding the race. So they were they were giving themselves more control to make sure they could optimize the weather and things like that. They also fine-tuned the drafting uh, formation. Instead of having an arrowhead 
pointing forward. They had a sort of reverse arrowhead pointing at Kipchoge with two drafters to two other runners running behind Kipchoge to help smooth out the, the slipstream of the air behind him. And this was done based on uh, wind tunnel testing and computational fluid dynamic uh, simulations. Whether that really made any difference is is hard hard to know. I, I couldn't help but notice during the race that Kipchoge kept drifting out to the side uh, away from his assigned spot in that formation. And presumably because it's actually very sort of unnerving and uncomfortable to run right up behind someone. And so he may have felt that he couldn't see well enough and didn't want to trip and just felt more comfortable drifting off to the side. But to me, that suggested that, you know, whatever subtle advantages they were getting from a slightly different pacing formation uh, probably were erased by the fact that he wasn't actually staying where he was supposed to stay. So, but the other the other big thing I mentioned this before is is uh, the Monza race was this sort of ghostly, uh, quiet race on this. It was restricted access, so there were only a few sort of people involved in the in the race who were gathered around the finish line. And so every one and a half miles, Kipchoge would come through the finish line, and there'd be a few scattered whoops and cheers. Uh, Vienna was a public thing where they, they were trying to get thousands and thousands of people to come out and cheer him on. And they did, uh, you know, and that was something Kipchoge specifically requested. He thought that would help him. Well, you know, whether it did or not, of course we can't, we can't measure, but that, that's certainly the most, I think to me, that's the most obvious change that they made. Last weekend after Kipchoge's run, you wrote that you were actually suffering from shoe fatigue. Why is everyone talking about these magical shoes? Yeah, it's this is the, the 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 big hot button issue, and it's been simmering for for more than two years now because Nike's Vaporfly shoes, which have uh, a carbon fiber plate and an extra thick layer of a very lightweight and resilient foam in them, they were publicly unveiled in 2017 uh, before the the Monza race, uh, but they'd actually been used by Nike athletes, you know, as as far back as early 2016, and they were used to win. The, uh, both the men's and women's marathons at the 2016 Olympics uh, before even anyone even knew they existed. And so that in itself was a controversy. That was, and that was, I, you know, as since I was a reporter covering the Monza race, I spent a lot of time writing about those shoes and, and wrestling with the question of whether that was fair to have shoes that were demonstrably several percent faster than the next best shoes on the market and to especially to have used them when nobody else even knew about them. And so this was a whole debate and it was an important debate to have and i kind of thought that you know if they were going to ban the shoes they should have banned the shoes around you know quite early on they didn't and i thought things would kind of settle down after that and and they were on their way to settling down i think but in a sense what nike has done is continued to kind of poke the beast and prod it and by introducing newer and newer models so the after the the vaporfly four percent they introduced the vaporfly next percent which unofficially is is reported to be about a five percent improvement in running economy which is a measure of efficiency and then as if that's not enough Kipchoge in the Vienna race was wearing yet another new prototype, which according to some rumors is going to be called the Alpha Fly, but you know, nobody really knows. These are all just rumors, but it's an even more monstrous beast. And these shoes, the Vaporflies themselves were very unconventional. They looked like sort of platform shoes, very different from typical racing flats. The next percent were a little thicker than that. And Kipchoge's new shoes are even more unusual. They're, they're visually very different. They're thicker they're uh, like they're they're they really look like platform shoes they've got a couple of pods under the forefoot nobody 
can have an informed discussion about them because nobody has been able to touch a pair. They're top secret. They're prototypes. No one can has looked at them. No one knows what's inside them. There's a, a patent that people are looking at, but no one really knows if that's that patent really applies to these shoes. So in other words, the shoe fatigue is that we had this debate and it was an important debate to have. But it's been two years now, and instead of being able to get any sort of tr- sort of stability or, or you know a new normal, the new normal keeps getting shifted every year. And that's you know I could handle it once, and I was willing to reconcile myself to that. And then it's like oh they introduced a new version. It's like oh another new version, and it looks even crazier and has more different features. We don't know what these pods are all about, so it's we we can't get any sort of. Uh, just a, a, a sense of normality or, or settle into a new stasis because that's so so it's giving me a little bit of shoe fatigue to be honest i was reading yesterday that one of the top 10 finishers at the chicago marathon actually described running in those shoes like running in trampolines and to my knowledge were they the same pair of shoes that bridget cosguy who broke the women's world marathon record at the chicago marathon during the week for two hours 14 and four seconds was wearing is that is that correct uh, that, as far as I know, we're in a realm of everyone's trying to guess what everyone else is wearing on their feet. And, and you know, it's not just Nike, different various shoe companies have these carbon fiber plate prototypes. And But from what I understand, Bridget Cosge was wearing uh, the Vaporfly Next Percent, which is the second generation Vaporflies. And I s- expect that's what the uh, the American top 10 finishers were wearing. I think that might have been Jake Riley or someone like that who said it was like trampolines. Um, and I will just jump in and say that the language around these shoes has become very politicized too because those who want the band are say, say these shoes have springs in them and those who don't want the band say the carbon fiber plates aren't acting as springs they're stiffening agents and it's the foam that acts as a spring in the same way that the foam in every midsole and every shoe ever made in the last 30 years acts as a spring so there, th- this language about trampolines it becomes part of the debate in some ways. There was a new BGSM blog, soon to be editorial, that was released this week that called for regulating shoe fairness. What are your thoughts about trying to bring in footwear regulations that we've actually seen, I think, in other sports like the NBA? Yeah, I think I think that, that editorial by, by Jeff Burns and, and Nicholas Tam was, was excellent, and I think it uh, – I agree with its proposal. It, what they suggested is the way we should regulate shoes is uh, – put limits on the stack height, so on the midsole thickness of shoes. Not worry about trying to specify exactly you can have carbon fiber, but you can't, or you can't have carbon fiber plates, but you can have hard plastic or fiberglass, whatever. Not getting into any of that sort of specific stuff, but just do a general geometric limitation, just like they already have for, for example, for high jump shoes. Say it can only be X thickness, and they suggested maybe 31 millimeters, which was the initial height of the first Nike Vaporfly prototypes. So they weren't necessarily trying to ban the shoes that are out there, although the current prototypes appear to be a bit thicker. They're they're saying, okay, you can have your carbon fiber plates, you can have your thick sole, but let's say this is where it stops. Let's establish a new normal and anything else is going to happen, have to happen within those parameters so that, as as Jeff Burns, the, the lead author, said, so that we don't get to a place in a few years where we... Athletes have things on their feet that we don't even recognize as shoes. They're more like athletic devices. And I think, you know, the, the truth is, go, going back to this question about shoe fatigue, I was, I thought that there was a good case for putting limits on, a, you know, in, a year ago or two years ago. And I, you know, I was sort of torn about whether they should or shouldn't. But now that I see the newest prototypes that Kipchoge wore, it's like, okay, this really is going to be an ongoing problem. And I think it becomes all the more urgent before the next Olympics to... Uh, to set 
just a a very simple limit like that, which shouldn't be super controversial. It's just a, a stack height. So yeah, I thought that was a, a, a well well written, well argued, and well timed piece. Do you think we'll ever see a day where competitors in the marathon or other running events will all be forced to wear the same shoe? You know, a small and irrational part of me hopes thinks that that would be awesome. Uh, the reality is that people are so different that you you can't you can't dictate a shoe for everyone. Uh, different people, depending on their biomechanics, depending on their history, depending on their background and body type, may uh, prosper or thrive or need different kinds of shoes. And so I, I don't think there's a realistic path to standardizing the equipment to that extent in the way that you see in like Olympic sailing where you show up and you just are assigned a boat randomly and you, you sail in that boat and it's the same as everyone else's boat. I love that idea of minimizing the variation in equipment, but I think the best we can do is more of a sort of bobsled style thing where you, you set some parameters within which innovation can happen so that you try and keep the balance such that, yes, innovation matters, but it's still, it's not going to be the, the difference maker that's going to separate, you know, gold from, from silver or gold from fourth place. One of the other performance enhancing factors that was probably talked about a bit more during the Monza attempt than this attempt because the shoes at the moment have most of the spotlight, was Kipchoge's fueling strategy and his mystical drink and gels that he was consuming and being delivered on the bike during this attempt in Vienna. Can you shed a bit of light about his nutrition strategy and what happened during this attempt? Yeah, it is interesting that that uh, that hasn't been discussed as much. So he's he's a convert to a new drink called a, re- a relatively new drink called Morten, M-A-U-R-T-E-N, from a, a small Swedish company. And he... He used it for the first time, at least publicly, in the Monza uh, attempt. And one of the funny details is the Nike crew didn't even realize he was using it. They thought he was using their drink, but he switched because he had just started, just tried it and really liked it. And the 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 shtick or the idea behind this this Morton, the drink and the gels, is that it has a couple of ingredients: pectin and alginate, which are supposed to, in your stomach, react with your stomach acid and and combine to form a hydrogel which effectively encapsulates the carbohydrate within your stomach. So one of the challenges in marathon racing is trying to get enough carbohydrate in quickly enough to meet your, your energetic demands. And when you try and do that, usually you end up, if you, if you actually try and match your, your losses, you end up with GI problems. You either end up with diarrhea or you're vomiting or just stomach upset that slows you down. So the idea here is this hydrogel kind of hides the carbohydrates from your, your stomach. Your stomach doesn't notice the car, the carbohydrates. It does. So it doesn't get upset. They slide into your intestine where they're absorbed into your bloodstream. So you're, you're able to drink a much higher concentration of carbohydrate. So that was a revolutionary idea in 2016, 2017. And the one missing, and 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 athlete, the word of mouth from athletes has been resoundingly positive. What's been missing is evidence, you know, studies, tracer studies showing that this carbohydrate is absorbed. And so my question has always been, how do we know they're not just pooping out a big wad of hydrogel, you know, 12 hours later? And you know, those studies were for, were forthcoming from what I understood in late 2016, then in, in 2017, and and time has ticked on, and I just haven't seen the data. Now that doesn't seem to be hurting the popularity of these drinks because from a word of mouth perspective, the athletes love it. Before I can go out with a straight face and say, Elliot Kipchoge is able to run faster because he's able to take in more carbohydrates than he would otherwise be able to. I would like to see see some data showing that that carbohydrate is absorbed. So until then, I think it's it's an open question. 
Alex, I want to be mindful of your time, but before we let you go, what do you think are the next big psychological barriers in sport that are just waiting to be broken in the next few years? Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, I think to me, the big area that's ripe for exploitation is actually, you know, the, a what's old is new kind of thing in sports psychology. So I, I think we have a good intuitive understanding and there are lots, of, for any sports psychologists out there, I, I hope they don't send me hate mail, but the, the truth is that a lot of what we do from a mental preparation perspective is anecdotally based or intuition based, or I've worked with athletes and this seems to work based. And there's started to be some some good studies looking at approaches like motivational self-talk. Uh, and the results have, have really blown my mind. Uh, there have been a few studies, one by Stephen Chung's group at Brock, one by Samuel Marcor's group at the University of Kent, uh, that tr have tried to, to randomize and control and say, what happens if we teach people basic motivational skills or motivational self-talk techniques and found incredible results in, in performance enhancing. And so I think there's a whole bunch of other tools in the sports psychology arsenal that can be tested more rigorously so we can understand how things like vis visualization work and in what context. And then once we have that data, we can start to identify who needs what when. And it's a tremendously complex problem. But I think, you know, in a, in a way, when I look at Elliot Kipchoge and see what he's accomplished, and, and for a guy who has average for an elite runner, you know, reasonably not crazy lab values for things like VO2 max and lactate threshold and, and running economy, what we see is that what makes him special, I think, is, is, is in the mind. And I think if we can start to quantify and, and systematize the ways to improve the skills that Eliud Kipchoge is maxed out at, the, the mental skills, then I think we'll, we'll see a lot of barriers come down in a lot of different sports. Alex, if our listeners want to continue this conversation and find out more about what you're up to and follow your work, where should they go? The easiest place to find me is on Twitter. My handle is is Sweat Science, all one word. And you know, any any recent work I have or recent articles that I've read that I find interesting, I post there. And there's there there seems to be a sort of continual discussion. Uh, you know, these days it's about shoes, but whatever the the topic of the moment is, there's always good discussion to be had there. Alex, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for your time today. Thanks so much, Daniel. Thank you for listening to this BJSM podcast with Dr. Alex Hutchinson. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with friends or leave us a review and connect through our social media channels. You can listen to a new clinically relevant BGSM podcast every Friday, and there is no better place to find them than on the BGSM app. As always, we hope you have a physically active day.